My guest today is somewhat of a mystery to me. The only thing I know about her is that she's a sales director at WeWork, responsible for the Dublin, Manchester and Birmingham territories. Previously, she worked at Virgin, the Dead Dolls Club and Meat Liquor. Zaida Williamson, welcome to the podcast. First of all, I have to ask you, Zaida, that's a, it's a beautiful name. I've never heard it before. What's the, what's the background to it? It's an Arabic name, actually. Um, I was given the idea that it meant happy for a long time. And then recently found out it was, it translated as the Huntress of Fortune. So I think I'll take the latter. On that, that sounds like your, your destiny's mapped out for you at birth. I think so. I think that was the idea. Yeah. And Williamson. So help me understand the, the, the birth of both of those and what's the story? What's behind it? Well, my parents are both fairly well traveled. Um, they converted to Islam at young ages. My mother's from Ireland and my father's from Newcastle. Hence the very English surname and the slightly different Muslim first name. The second thing that jumped out for me when I first came across you on LinkedIn was the Dead Dolls Club. And I thought, what, mm. what is that place? It sounds very macabre. It sounds creepy. Maybe tell me, where, where, it's a restaurant, I believe, in London, right? Yeah, so it was a restaurant and events bar in London. It was actually owned very, by a very good friend of mine, Gregory Barry. And I used to consult there and work as a general manager for a period of time. And we opened up a new site across London, which I also used to run, which was also the Dead Dolls Club. Mm. And the other, the other one that jumped out at me was Meat Liquor, was another name. I mean, do you on purpose go out of your way to find the places to work that have unusual names? One would assume so, uh, but unfortunately, I think they just find me. Um, Meat Liquor was a brilliant restaurant and quite a, it was a very gloomy kind of almost dive bar aesthetic uh, restaurant and it served amazing burgers. So thankfully for my waistline, I'm not there anymore. <laughs> I, I'm curious, uh, Zaida, you said your mother was Irish, uh, your father was from Newcastle. Uh, I don't know whether they had a conventional upbringing or not, but you said they converted then to Islam uh, uh, along the way. Did that mean you had some sort of a unconventional and that there's a marriage there of so many different influences? Or did you, was it just absolutely normal to you in, in terms of where you grew up? I mean, I, obviously, however we grow up, it's always going to seem normal to us. That's our normal. Um, there were a lot of Islamic influences in my upbringing, but I wasn't necessarily raised to be a Muslim myself. It was more that we all had our own choices. So I've got five brothers and we've all individually chosen how much we'd be influenced that in our daily mm. lives. And I'm curious how it's influenced you in terms of your choice of career, in terms of what you would have been exposed to as a child, what you were like, what you were interested in and how that's panned out. I think, um, you know, we were never conventionally set as, you know, education was obviously at forefront, but it was never something that was kind of beaten into us. We were all very creative growing up. Um, I was kind of on the other end of the scale where I liked being very organized and I liked structure. Um, 
So I think, you know, my dream as a child is I wanted to be an aid worker. But on the other end of the scale, as an aid worker, I wanted to work in project management where I'd manage kind of sites and things like that. So it was always, I think, almost you rebel against what you're raised with. So where we were raised in a very creative kind of home, I wanted the more structured side of it. Were you the eldest? No, I'm the second, second youngest. youngest. So I've got five brothers. Yeah, interesting choice of profession or desire for a second youngest. The project management, I mean, yeah. something with structure. Very often, they kind of that the, the younger children tend to be well. Maybe it's where, where you uh, ended up more outgoing and and open to um, kind of creative pursuits. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, three of my brothers are artists, and then myself and two of my brothers work in. Well, they're both tradesmen, so we were kind of it was three of us were very creative and three of us went the other way so i think it was a quite a um an interesting dynamic for all of us yeah. um and i think going into my career as i as i started i mean i started work at 14 in a restaurant so i started very early in hospitality and i didn't necessarily want to remain in it but i learned a lot from it as i went through that's definitely impacted how I work today in the environments I work in today. The, yeah, so if I look at the restaurants, that's clearly hospitality-driven. Uh, Virgin, were you on the retail end, I'm guessing? Yeah, so I started in kind of membership services, which is similar to account management, but also running the front of house. Yeah. And then I transferred into the sales element within my time there. So now you're at WeWork, again, I would imagine it's a, it is a, a form of hospitality business, yeah. um, but, also, but also different in that you're dealing with businesses rather than individuals and consumers. Um, how, yeah. Wondering what was the, that transition like? You know, I have a theory, you know, we used to have obviously, you know, countries had military service. I genuinely think that everyone should do at least two years in hospitality before they enter the working world. Because, you know, the lessons that you learn in how to deal with people, how to de-escalate situations, how to manage every different walk of life, um, it really is invaluable. And I mean, a common theme throughout my working life has always been people. So I think once you understand, in essence, how to work with people, how to manage different people and different kind of situations, it's one of those things that those elements can be seamless. You're just learning and picking up different elements of how to do the job in each different environment as you go along. Um, My experience of hospitality, and I've never worked in it, but but I have some relatives who, uh, my nephew in particular I'm thinking of, uh, who's a general manager of a casino and he's worked in hotels and so on. And uh, it's very much a, a, a reactive type job that you, you're, there's always something that you, you're, you're reacting to. A crisis here, something that needs to be done over there. And that, that to me seems to sit a little bit at loggerheads with a desire to be structured and, you know, you mentioned wanting to be a project manager and be working on the detail. And I'm curious to know if there's, there's, there's any tension in that between the demands of the job and your own particular, what you gravitate towards. 
I think, it, as you said, it is a very reactive industry um, and it is very much, you never know what you're going to go into each day. But I think getting pushed out of my comfort zone in a, a very young age, you know, it, it definitely formulates a, a response in which how you navigate every different situation. Because as we all understand everything in life, nothing's going to be set in stone, nothing's going to be structured and organized. You're not going to get stability in any walk of life. So it definitely gave me a um, the ability to be fluid in situations where it was required. And I think even now, you know, to this day, I don't know what a day is going to be like. I can walk in with a very good idea of what I need to achieve and what I come out with might be something very different. So it, it definitely formulated that kind of Response. And we work like that. I, I would have thought, again, my only experience of we work is I've been in a number of the buildings working there with, with client companies. My experience of it is much more operational. And I know hospitality is operation, clearly it is. But the demands, yeah. those immediate demands, I would have thought are not there, but maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's one of those things. It's not to say that, you know, you know, you're kind of going into any day and it's not structured. There is structure there. But I think with any role, you're always going to be putting out fire somewhere. There's always something that needs to take priority. And, you know, with any company, with any job, I don't think, unless you're you know, a surgeon where you're going in and you have one thing to do that day, I don't think anything is going to be that structured that you won't have to respond and react in certain instances and prioritize when need be. Mm -hmm. It's definitely not the same as, you know, being in a restaurant where it can be completely different each day, but there is an element of it. Clearly your business has not been without its challenges this year. Your client base just almost disappears overnight. And I'm wondering if that's something that your, your, your prior experience has helped you prepare for. And I'm also interested in what that's like and how you dealt with it and where you are now with it. In terms of, you know, how we've worked through in the past year, I think so many times within any company, you're going to have challenges thrown at you. Every company has had to react to the pandemic and it's really had an adverse effect on so many businesses and so many different walks of life for everyone. I think, you know, personally for me, I manage across you know, two different countries and five cities. And so my work and my day to day is always kind of, there is an element of remote. And so that actually hasn't changed a massive amount for me. Um, but in terms of, you know, how we've all had to strive against the pandemic, it's definitely been difficult and there have been challenges at certain aspects of it, but everyone's teamed together and there is a real community structure within our team, within our kind of internal workforce. And I think everyone's been really super supportive and created an environment in which we can push through as a team, as opposed to everyone struggling individually. And is it a case now of just waiting these, this out and you're feeling that it'll come back to the way it was, or are you reimagining it to be somewhat different in the future? I think it will be different to an extent. Um, I think everyone, you know, we've seen so many articles and so many different think pieces on the ways of working. And it's brilliant because I think with the way in which we've worked, I think everyone has realized doesn't necessarily work for everybody and doesn't necessarily work on a general scale. And so 
I think as we go back to work, I don't know about everybody else, but going back straight away to five days a week is going to be quite difficult. And I think also, you know, traveling into cities and things like that, the flexibility that's going to be required from employers to, you know, definitely work with their teams and work with their employees to understand what it is they need and what it is they feel is best for them to be as productive as possible. Mm. I do think that people will be going back to the office. Mm. I can't speak for everybody else, but I definitely can't work from home anymore. And I think the camaraderie that you get from working in and, you know, the collaboration that you get from working in office is something that really inspires business and definitely helps with also, you know, having a work-life balance, which is really important. Uh, I think it's one of those things that I think people have now discovered it's like yeah, a fish doesn't miss water until it's taken out of water. And I think it's the same with people that we've realized we need other people just that, that even this casual contact, even if it's holding the door yeah. open for somebody and saying hi as they pass by or saying, excuse me, as you're waiting for, in the coffee queue, those little moments matter. Exactly. And community that we have, I think is really important. Yeah. And I, I've had many discussions with many different friends and business leaders that we work with. And, you know, it's definitely a case of the community aspect of the workplace. In, I think we've taken it for granted up until now. And I think everyone's very much looking forward to getting back to it. And I have a very kind of positive outlook about how that transition is going to go. I think we'll all be returning in some form. Yeah, no, for sure. The only thing I wonder about is if the... The physical structure of, I don't mean the internals of offices, but where they are, the, 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 the geography is a lot of them at the moment have been in major cities. And, yeah. and, and I think an element of that will be true because I think younger people want to be in major cities. But I think it's people who are, who are more family oriented in their 30s and 40s. I think the, the structure of the, the WeWork environment is, is absolutely brilliant. I would imagine that there'll be more micro hubs built by or bought by developed by the likes of WeWork but in in smaller more remote locations that not everybody is going to want to go back to in, in the city and I'm just yeah I mean we have you know if you take London for example we've got 58 buildings across the entire city and they're all the way in East London they're in Hammersmith very residential areas and, you know, I think it's one of those things. If your company is based in a city building in the direct in the city, you know, and you don't want to travel in, then you have those options to go to more residential buildings. We've kind of rolled out what we call all access, which provides people with the ability to choose wherever they want to work from. But the environment in which they work from is still an office area. It's still very much a collaboration space that isn't working from home, but they don't necessarily need to travel through the city as they would do before. They've got the option of where they want to work mm. from. So we rolled that out across the globe. And I think it's definitely something that's going to come to mm. be very popular as we start yeah. to return. To In terms of your career to date, what would you regard as your greatest accomplishment? Um, I think I've learned a lot. I think one of the main accomplishments I've had is a lesson I've learned, to be honest, which is my work-life balance. I don't think it's considered, in this day and age, I don't know how much of a priority people make it, but I've always been very driven to do my best. Um, and sometimes 
that infringes on the difference between what is a career and what is your life. And so I think a work-life balance and understanding that I'll do my best and I'll accept the rest is something that's been mm. very important mm. for me. Most people tend to have a pivotal moment in that journey mm. where they go, hang on a second, this is not the be all, the end all. What was yours? Um, I got sick. I actually contracted sepsis uh, about a year and a half ago. And I, <laughs> I remember I was in my hospital bed and I joined a work meeting and one of my mentors was on the call and he was just like, can you not see that this is ridiculous? <laughs> you don't need to be on this meeting and you're valuing it way too much. And I kind of stepped back at that point and was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Mm. Um, and I think also it's one of those things that you, you can't fill anyone else's cup if your own isn't full. And so the fact is, if you don't take that time to, you know, have some space, away from your work you're not going to also be able to come back to it with any fresh ideas mm. you're not going to come back to it rested and it will suffer mm. you know we're not i don't think you know if you're working I've, i used to praise myself on working 16 hour days um i remember a manager of mine turned around and he said well all you're proving is that you're so inefficient you can't get your work done in eight Ouch. so it's, it's very true. And I think that is, you know, it's a very underrated lesson, but I think it's a very important mm. one. Is that, is that, does that come from a place of self-doubt that you feel you're working harder to prove yourself to others? I don't know if I'm actually proving to others. I think it's more a case of, you know, um, to myself, it's more a case of I will be successful. I will do this, you know, and also look at how hard I'm working. You know, it's that whole thing you're telling yourself, you're like, look how busy I am. Mm. And I think, you know, I very much had that in leaving London and coming to Dublin uh, two years ago. In London, it's very much a case of you're busy for the sake of being busy. You know, if you have a conversation with someone on a Monday morning and they're like, how, how was your weekend? In, our, in London, they're very much like, I did this and I did this and I did this and I was so busy and I had so much to do. And then I would speak to people in Ireland and they were like, oh, watch telly. It's great. Yeah. You know, and that kind of how you're not seeking approval for being busy, but you're also not seeking it from yourself to prove that you're going somewhere. That's why you're so busy. Um, and I realized that I could be so much more efficient. And if I was better with my time, um, then I could have both. Uh, yeah, I, I, I can understand that. I remember I worked in the UK myself for a good few years and there was one place I worked in that had that kind of culture. And if you left at five o'clock, as you were walking out, people would look at their watch and go, on a half day, Paul. <laughs> it is a very, I think there is something about London in general. Yeah. I think, and I think there's many other cities about it where it's, you know, it's not just even in work and mm. your social life, you always have to be doing mm. something. Um, and I, I really learned that coming to Ireland where people were proud of the fact that they managed to have a, do the bare minimum. And I was like, this is incredible. Now that you have found more work-life balance, what do you like to do with the balance bit? I read a lot. I've always been a very big reader. And I think I lost scope of that when I you know, would work so much. Because a lot of the time you finish work and you're so mm. tired, you don't want to focus on anything. So I'm, a, I'm a big reader. Um, and that's definitely a big hobby of mm. mine. Um, and then I think I've started painting. I'm not the best. 
but uh, I do enjoy it sometimes. It's a nice release. Yeah, it's, I, I'm, I'm just wondering at the painting side, are we coming full circle in terms of going back to your creative <laughs> roots? Um, uh, I mean, they're not very good. I like the process more than anything. Yeah. No one will see them. Well, actually, the, what you said is really important. You said, I like the process more than anything. I think people lose sight of mm. that way too much and they judge the end rather than enjoy the process. Oh, 100%. I mean, any paintings I've done or any artwork, I don't ever look at again. Yeah. <laughs> but the actual process of doing it, taking, you know, three or four hours just to sit and focus on one thing, yeah. it's a similar meditation. It's a very calm thing. It's, you know... Just you stop thinking about everything else and it's a way of definitely blocking 100%. out. hundred percent. I think everybody should have yeah. some sort of creative hobby, whether it's learning some music or language or painting. And there's actually been a lot of studies I've read uh, on this about the aging process of the brain as well, that it completely mm. has a major impact on, on the aging process in the brain. But uh, you said you like to read. I'm curious, what do you like to read? It really depends. I set myself a challenge last year that I would read four different philosophers, um, which was a very big challenge. Yeah. Um, so I did, you know, social contract with Jean-Jacques Rousseau and Sartre and all those bits. But I think if I had to choose, I do love the kind of beatnik era. I love Jack Kerouac, you know. I do love a lot of American writers like Henry David Thoreau and Salinger. But if I had to choose a book that I would read again and again until the end of the time, it would be Tolkien. It would be Lord of the Rings. Okay. I have to admit, I've never read Lord of the Rings. I don't even, I have never seen the, the, the movies either. Um, I know it's Middle Earth, that's about it, and there's, there's goblins and stuff <laughs> in there. Um, yeah. I, I'll come back to that in a moment. You mentioned Beatnik, and I'm deadly curious because I know that term, I, but I couldn't, mm. I don't know what it is. Perhaps you could. Put me out of my misery. So it was very much a kind of turn of age of, um, you know, you've got people like Jack Kerouac who wrote On the Road, which I'm sure you've heard of. Um, I'm, feel, I'm feeling really not okay at the moment now because I'm clearly in the <laughs> presence of somebody who's not the Philistine that I am. And so <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't actually, so please enlighten me. Um, so On the Road, it was a book basically that was written around a set around a man in the 1950s who kind of gave everything up and started decided to travel across America. Um, it's very much the beatnik generation. I'm probably brutalizing this was 1950s and 1960s, and it was kind of like a subculture, um, you know, kind of associated with like you know art and kind of being a little bit shaggy and kind of you know it's one of these things where you you were different because obviously in the 1950s it was very much you get a house, white picket fence, you know, have kids. And so it was almost like the response to that. And so, you know, the On the Road book is a book that Jack Carrick wrote about his traveling across America and yeah. being a bit of a so here's the thing. slum dog. As, as, you're, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm, I can feel my spine tingling in that if you were to describe my ideal world, you're describing it now. I love that 50s, 60s. In fact, if I, I probably, you know, regular visitors to my library would see, I'm a huge fan of old film cameras. Yes, I have the digital Amazing. ones. Obviously, I wouldn't be recording this if I didn't. But that whole sense of stripping things out, um, the, 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 
Oops, I have a, a kind of a, an old motorbike as well that doesn't have any of the bells and whistles on it. I just love that. It's al almost bohemian. It's, it's not quite, but it's... It, it was almost bohemian, but then it kind of wasn't, you know, there was definitely... Um, it was a rebellion against the idea of conformity. Yeah. Um, I mean, definitely there's someone that knows a lot more about it than me that's definitely going to counter and, and but, um, give a better explanation. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about what, what, what's in that that resonates with you because just as you describe it and then you talk about, well, your own early influences from your parents. Hmm. I mean, it's very much my dad. Uh, he photographed Allen Ginsberg in Newcastle and who was another poet from the Beatnik generation, which I was thrilled by. He wasn't so much, but he was, you know, he traveled the world and he lived in Central America for a long time. And he then moved to America and went logging in Canada and studied at Berkeley. And, you know, he was very much a kind of there at that time. It, he traveled around a hell of a lot. And my mother traveled a lot. Traveling is definitely something that um, I feel I'm very passionate mm. about when we can. Mm. But I think with the on the road, when I read that, I was very young. I think I was 14 or 15. And it was this whole idea of you can give everything up, get on a bus with your backpack and go right. anywhere. And I, I definitely did really kind of sit there and go, you can do more. There is more out there. And I think that's why I definitely love that yeah. book so, so much. So what I'm hearing is not so much that do you have any particular desire to jump on a motorbike and travel the world? You, you might, but it's more of a case of, look, you don't have to be tied down by convention. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I've done a fair amount of traveling um, and obviously it's one of those things. I'm either one or the other. As I said, I, I do enjoy structure and I love stability, but then I've had times where I've just booked a flight to Sri Lanka and gone three days later, you know? So it's either one or the other. Yeah. Um, and I think I do get that's definitely something that confidence to do that is something I got from my parents. Yeah. Is, is that sort of just impulsiveness or is it something more more than that? Um, I do. I think, you know, my dad calls me a flight risk. Um, and I, <laughs> <laughs> um, and he, that's you know, the, that's the kind of those... thing that only a father could get away with saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah um, you know, I think it's one of those things. I moved to Dublin and I moved here with two suitcases and one of them was full of books. I've never, I've, I like being able to kind of have very minimal and be able to be free to make whatever decision I want to, whether that be staying still and staying settled in a somewhere or having the option to go, actually, I'm going to yeah. go. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things yeah. again. So the next time you're traveling, you've got your two cases, one full of books and one full of clothes. Get rid of the books and buy yourself a Kindle. It'll be a whole lot lighter when you travel, I promise you. No, that is sacrilege. No. Oh, you know what it is? My wife's a massive reader. Every night, every day, she'll always have a book on the go. But since she discovered her Kindle, she absolutely loves it. Now, I do prefer the tactile and, and the smell of a, of a real book. But uh, mm. she absolutely loves her Kindle and would not go. If, if our house was burning down and she could only grab one object, she'd go for it. She'd leave you. No, the Kindle. Kindle she, Paul, you make your own way out. I'm getting my Kindle. I know that for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you travel a lot. Where's your favorite place you traveled? And, and what, what did you learn in your travels? 
Oh, I mean, it's it's pretty hard to nail down one place. I loved Thailand. Thailand was a magical mm. place. Um, I've traveled a lot on my own, which I think, you know, in this culture, it's not very often you get very uh, many solo female travelers because, you know, I think the whole perception is that it's very dangerous. Mm. But um, I've experienced, I think, going traveling on your own, it's probably the most fruitful thing you can do because you talk to everybody. You're no longer in a bubble with somebody else. You go and sit in a beach bar and you have a conversation with someone because you don't have that person next to you that you're traveling with. Um, and it just opens your eyes to a whole other different trip. Yeah. So I'd say Thailand and I loved Mexico. Okay. Mexico is amazing. Yeah. Two places I've never been to and I've been to quite a few. But I think your, your, your point on the traveling as well in terms of speaking to others, the, the very fact you're both traveling automatically means you have something in common, which breaks a lot of barriers straight away. You're both coming from somewhere, you're both going to somewhere. And that in itself can be a huge source of, uh, I guess, connection when, with, with, with other travelers. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes you're going nowhere. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you don't know where you're yeah. going. And I think, I, think I've, I mean, especially when I was in Mexico, I had absolutely no plan, yeah. really. And I, I met someone and they were like, you need to go to Tulum. It's incredible. And then, you know, an hour later, I was off to this place I didn't even know existed. So it's beneficial. For sure. Um, I wanted to come back and maybe talk a little bit more about work and your, your journey into sales leadership specifically. Uh, you would have come from an operational background, dealing front of house, dealing with people. So clearly you're a people person and you're good with people. What were some of the early challenges you had when you made that transition into leadership for other people out there who are looking at starting out? Mm. What would you say were the kind of the key hurdles for you? I think one of the things that I, I've learned personally um, is I'm an extroverted introvert. That's just something someone told me once. I'm very good at being in a room of people. I'm very good at talking to many different people. I don't I feel that I have the confidence to talk to somebody that I've never spoken to before quite well. And, you know, that's really helpful, but I don't find that I fill myself up in social situations. I feel that, you know, taking that alone time is a big thing. Um, and that's where I kind of really recharge. And so that's quite an important part for me. And I think in terms of, you know, moving into a leadership position, you have to, in a position whereby you're managing a team, I think it's very important to understand why you're doing it. I managed people in hospitality a lot. And when I joined WeWork, I was an individual contributor and I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. And then as soon as it came a time for me to move into leadership, it was very much, I saw it as a responsibility. I was taking on a team of people that I was there to serve and I was there to lead. And I had a responsibility of them. And it wasn't a case of, I think some people move into a leadership position and they're kind of like, I'm the boss and these are my disciples. And that is not a reason to move into leadership. And that's not a reason to become a manager or a people manager. I think you have to understand that you're accountable for those people and that you are the source of truth for them. And that is a massive responsibility. So I definitely think you have to understand what it is you're walking into before you mm. do it. I would imagine also from everything you've, you've told me so far that 
the uh, you're clearly comfortable with uncertainty right mm. that that there's something in that that attracts you you like structure but there's also an element that you like uncertainty and i think in this current environment as we are i think that's going to be really important for people who look up to you and and, and look to you for direction that you're you're uh, an outward sense of calmness that look this is this is just what it is and to be comfortable with that it's going to be yeah. a really important trade i would imagine um you said something else which was interesting as well this uh, i'm an extra introverted extrovert or was it an extroverted introvert an introverted an extrovert that was interesting when you said that I, I in my head i went snap because i've had that exact same thing people often assume i'm extroverted because i'll go on stage or I'll, I'll i'm training and i'm and i'm with groups of people but that's 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 in that role but then i get my mm. sense of energy from being on my own and I, is it it's the same yeah. for you yeah, I, I mean, I'm I'm great in social situations and you can be the life of the mm. party, but that might not be where you gain, you where you recharge. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. You can be both a work in progress mm. and a work of art simultaneously. But at the same time, you know, when you're in, when you're on your mm. own and that's where you recharge, and that's where you mm. kind of find your yeah. energy. That's a very good thing to understand before you go into those situations. I, I'm wondering then, do you, do you, have you ever found that people find that strange, not strange in a weird sense, but strange as in they don't know what to do with it, as in they see you being extroverted and they assume that automatically you're an extrovert and then when you want your own time to recharge, they don't understand it? Um, to an extent. I don't think it's I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a work thing. Mm. I think it's definitely more about you know friends and things. They're like I don't understand why you need to be on your own. I thought you were an extrovert, mm. you know. Um, but you have to be true to yourself, and you have to know that. And I think it took me a while to actually understand that. And when I did, I was like, ah, that's why I'm leaving at six because I'm tired now and I need to go home and I can't give you all energy yeah. anymore. And I think you know you have to be at the end of the day you're your own cavalry. Mm. So you have to provide that sense of security for yourself and protect yourself when you need that. So whether or not people understand it isn't necessarily your problem. Yeah, uh, I'm guessing, you, did you come to Dublin with WeWork? Or did you come to Dublin first? Well, I was offered the job and they offered me Paris, Dublin or London. And uh, you, my friend- Wait, 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 wait. You <laughs> turned down Paris for Dublin? I did yeah okay you you need to explain yourself for this one <laughs> well my french is not great um and i'd done london i kind of I thought you know i've worked in london i know how it goes and when dublin came up obviously i've been to dublin quite a bit i came a lot as a child and i loved the people here i loved you know i thought it, it the one great thing about dublin is it's a city in a town you know, you do relinquish your anonymity, which is what you do get from a city like London. But it's again, the same way I could have mentioned earlier, you have that kind of slower vibe, mm. but you're able to still work within the same elements yeah. of being in a city. It's funny you should say that. I, by the way, I only half joking about Paris. Paris is a beautiful city, but you're right. It's the people in Dublin. It's, it's who, who, who likes Parisians, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they're fine. Of but, course I mean, they are. Of course they are. Individually, yeah, absolutely. They are. They're, they're lovely people. 
<laughs> Truly. I, 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 they know I'm joking because I know a lot of them. I, right. That yeah. sounds like I know every Parisian on the planet. No, I don't. <laughs> but I have, a, you know, good, good, good French pals and, and, and they have a good sense of humor. So they know I'm, I'm only kidding them. Uh, but it was funny you said about you losing your anonymity coming from London to Dublin. I grew up in a yeah. regional town in Ireland, about 80 miles south of Dublin, 15,000 population. So pretty small on the overall scheme of things. And we would have looked at Dublin and, and when moved to Dublin as, as in our early 20s or late teens, that Dublin, you were anonymous in Dublin. So it's quite interesting to see no. that those, those perspectives, and it is all perspective when you think about it. But when you look, when, no, in, in Dublin, nobody knows your business. It's fantastic. And uh, you, you had the opposite. Yeah, I mean, I had, uh, I, obviously, I moved from London, which has 8 million people in it. You know, you'll see someone once, you'll never see them again. Mm. And I, I moved here and I found that, you know, you, you'd be talking about someone and it, someone behind you would be like, I know his mum. And you're like, what? You know, and I think it's quite funny. I, I remember being in um in a bar. I'd been here for about six months and I was in a bar and there was a group of friends of friends. And then this one of the guys was like, oh, you know, there's a new English girl that started at WeWork. And I was like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I had no correlation wow. to him at all. And yeah. I think it, the kind of Francis Bacon element of, you know, five degrees of separation, yeah. it's it's it's. Two or three in Dublin. Yeah, it is funny that London is... Uh, I, I absolutely have to say I love London as a city. I don't know that I'd want to live there. I, I spent a summer there, and it's just the commuting is... It's, and it's like this daily... You, you, it's like you go down a rabbit hole in, in, in what looks like and feels like one city, and then you pop up somewhere else into daylight, and it's completely different. And, and The thing you need to london is everywhere is going to take you an hour wherever you want to go it can be to the next borough it can be the other side of the city everything is going to take an hour yeah, yeah it does so you, you so you came to dublin with we work um so you've no family ties to to ireland or, or dublin so well my aunt lives here but my family my mother's from Tipperary. my mother's uncle i'm sorry yeah my mother's uncle was a hurling referee in Tipperary. Okay. So I've heard a lot about it. Yeah, definitely. Muck savages, a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I know, I don't, well, I don't know. Actually, what I said about the prisons, I don't mean, I do mean it about the Tipperary folks. There's, there's no question about that. <laughs> uh, so I, I, where, where to for you next? Have, have you any sense in terms of your life mapped out where you'd like to go? Funnily enough, I think uh, the past couple of years have shown me that anything can happen in a year you know not just obviously the pandemic but i've had some kind of different life changes whereby a year everything can change in a year and i quite like mm. that so i think i'm definitely going to stay on the road of i'm going to enjoy right now i'm not going to kind of look forward and go i need to have a house in two years i need to have you know i need to be married and have a white picket fence in three years i like the idea of kind of not knowing and I, I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up living in Lisbon or moving around quite a bit. Mm. What would you like to have if you're just to kind of wave a magic wand and go poof here, here's where I am what what appeals to you what attracts you? I think I mean I'd like to have a holiday home in Lisbon or a home in Lisbon that I could pop in and out of that would be 
that would definitely be on the list. But I think, again, you know, as much as I'd like to wave a magic wand, I like not knowing. I think that's the fun. If we knew everything, what would be the point in continuing the story? Now, you said Lisbon, not Lisburn, right? Because Lisbon is a little backward place in Northern (laughs) Ireland. I don't know anybody on the planet would want a holiday home in that place. but uh, (laughs) No, Portugal. Portugal. A little bit more. Yeah. I am. I'll have to say I love Portugal now. You know, I've been on holidays there many times and I've been at work in Lisbon a few times. My favorite place, and I don't, I'm curious to know if you've been there, is um, it's in the north now. I mean, <laughs> I'm saying it's my favorite place. And my, I've just got a brain freeze on the name of it. Uh, Porto. <laughs> have you been to Porto? Have you been to Porto? Yeah. I, have, I love yeah. that. And I, I prefer to Porto. It's just more, or to Lisbon. It's much more raw and... Un, unvarnished mm. there's something about it that to me appeals again I, I, Lisbon is a beautiful town but that just Porto is just to me feels more I don't know I hate the word authentic it's thrown around by everybody these days <laughs> uh, but yeah I think there's it's Something about it reminds me of my childhood growing up in Ireland in the in the seventies. That that was just you you played on the street. the The background noise was dogs barking and other kids laughing. It's just that raw city vibe about the place. Mm. Yeah, it really it really does appeal. But uh, beautiful. What would you say mm. you're most proud of? in your your life to date in general or in work we'll start with general and then we'll 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 look at work i'd say i'm most proud of my resilience i think i think i'm most proud of you know i think if i had shown where i am now to this 16 year old me i'd be very happy about it you know I think I've definitely been very resilient in the face of many challenges that I've had and I've come to a place that I'm you know I'm I feel strong and I feel like I'm still empathetic and I'm the whole rounded character that I could have wished to have been and so while I'm definitely learning and I'm not all the way there I think that's something I'm most proud of I don't think I'd attribute it to a specific um kind of I don't think I'd attribute it to a specific instance. It's more a case of... Yeah, well, I, and I wanted to ask you that, if you're comfortable, is where have you found, in the face of what, have you found yourself digging into your resilience and finding your own resilience in? Um, I think, um, you know, over the past kind of couple of years, I've definitely experienced loss within my family, which was quite difficult. And... I think it's one of those things you don't necessarily know how you're going to respond to that. I think, you know, we all watch the films and we say, oh, that's that's how it's going to work out. That's how we'll respond. And when it happens, your reaction isn't the same. And I think, you know, a lot of the time from loss and from, you know, losing people in your life, you can definitely have the risk of turning bitter and cold to things. And... I would have, if, you know, you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I would have definitely said that's probably the way I would have gone. But I'm really proud of the fact that I didn't. And I actually 
learnt, took from that and learned from that mm. experience and it's made me a better person. And, and you said you didn't, was that a conscious effort or was, or was it just something that you, you actually discovered in yourself that you didn't know was already there? I think the latter. I think it was, it was always there and I just wasn't aware yeah. of it. Yeah. I, so I, I can understand that because then you're discovering more of yourself, which is where the pride comes from, is that we're, we discover that we're more than we ever thought we were. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think we have more. I, th I think we're so capable of more than we know. And it's not until you're in the face of adversity that that really comes to fruition. Yeah. When all this is over, Zaida, and you've shuffled off this mortal coil, and there is a statue erected in your honor. And at the base of the mm -hmm. statue, there's a little plaque. What would you like it to say? She said she was sick. <laughs> <laughs> Do you always use humor to deflect from areas you don't want to go into? I do. I mean, I think I'm hilarious. So I think it's definitely a, a definite way to go. No, I'd say, and to be fair, I've stolen that one. Yes. That was quite brilliant. Yes. Um, I'd say there is an Aldous Huxley clock quote, and it just says, lightly, darling. Lightly? I really like that. Lightly, darling. Lightly, darling. What, what exactly does that mean to you? It's more a case of just tread lightly. Okay. Just lightly, darling. You know, I think tread lightly. And I, I just, I think it's, um, it can have whatever connotation anyone that was going to read that plaque would think. But yeah. for me, it's just more, you know, tread lightly. Yeah, that's the artist in you, because I think a good artist will put something out there and will say, it's up to you to interpret it. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's a great place to leave this today. We are up against it on time, regrettably. I could talk to you all day. Zaida Williamson, thank you so much for being my guest today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you for having me.